I've regularly told other pastors that I coach and work with, I said, I have a huge advantage over most of you other pastors in that I grew up on a farm. And my contention is that farmers always make the best pastors. And the reason is because they, they understand the balance. Paul said it this way. He said, I planted the seeds and Apollos watered the seeds and God caused the growth. But any farmer knows that if they don't plant the seeds and if they don't water the seeds, God isn't going to make the corn grow. There's the balance. There's a partnership. And what we do between our responsibility and what God then does. And uh, there's a lot of people in ministry that I hear them say things like, well, it must be God's will that our church is small. Because if he wanted to, he could make it grow. And I think to myself, he probably wants it to grow, but he's not going to make it grow if you don't plant the seed. If you don't water the corn. That's just the way it is. And so, in the 90s especially, starting I think with about 1989, I started going to three, sometimes four, um, church seminars a year. And they're churches like ours all over the country that put on a two to five day seminar. Now the only churches that do that are churches that are growing because that's the only kind of church people would go to their seminar on. And so I would go to those various churches and go to the seminar and learn uh, principles of growing corn, as it were. And so the thing about uh, when we were dairy farmers, we would get a, a, a little piece of paper every month that had all the farms in the northwest ranked top to bottom on milk production. Now, if you wanted to know how to do a better job running your dairy, you didn't go to the one that was on the bottom. You went to the one that was on the top because they were on the top for a reason. And so now there are dozens and dozens of organizations that what they do is they study growing churches. And they ask the question, why is this church growing? There's always a reason. And as they study various growing churches around the country, they collect this information and they give it to you in a systematic kind of way. There's classes. I'm signed up. I'm registered in one particular class. Called, it's called uh, Church Health University. And you listen to a, a podcast each week of guys that are experts in this whole area of what it takes to grow a healthy church. And, uh, and, and then there's a magazine put out that lists every year the 100 largest churches in the United States, the 100 fastest growing churches in the United States. And I look up every one of their websites, go to their websites, see if they have a blog, see if they have any information that I can get a hold of. And, and then I subscribe to a lot of these pastors write blogs like I do, and then I subscribe and get their blog. Uh, so I can read it and see and learn from them as one of the I mean, if you take the 100 largest churches and the 100 fastest growing churches in the United States, there's about 300,000 churches. That's the cream of the crop. And all of them are there for a reason. And so I read their blogs, I read their web page, uh, and the stuff that they write, that they're doing, and uh, always trying to learn what kind of church does God bless? What kind of church does God um, 
work in? What kind of church did God use? Because they all, the ones that are, have common denominators. They all, all have things in common. By the way, I think most of you know this. This is my last Sunday for four months, last Wednesday for four months. And I'm leaving to go fishing and hunting and bicycle riding. And it's called a study break. Not a fishing break, a hunting break, bicycling break. It's called a study break. The reason it's called a study break is when I come home uh, at the end of August, I will have uh, 30 to 40 sermons all written out. And so I went to a church seminar, like I just mentioned, about 15 years ago. And the pastor was the pastor of the largest church in the United States. And it was a phenomenally successful church. And he still to this day is my favorite preacher of all preachers I've ever listened to. And he said, if you want to be a really good preacher, he said, what you need to do is to take three months every year and not do anything but work on your sermons. He said, when you're trying to write sermons while you're trying to be a pastor, he said, it's just hard to get it done. Put the time into it. They're never as good as they could be. He said, so go hiking, go biking, go hunting, go fishing, doing something where you can listen to podcasts, you can write, you can read. And when you come home, you got 30 to 40 sermons done. I've been doing that for 10 years now, uh, leaving every summer and um, hunting, fishing, riding bicycle across the country. Last year was two months. And coming home, this last year I came home with 33 sermons on the book of First Peter. And uh, that's just what I do. So anyway, uh, Steve Sherman is going to be preaching while I'm gone. And he's the second best preacher in the world. And so you will enjoy his preaching. He's pastored for 25 years, thereabouts. And so he's experienced, knows what he's doing. You will enjoy his, his pastoring. And I will be off Writing sermons and catching fish and bicycling and uh, spending time with my grandkids, whom I will be with in various places of the country at the same time. So I learned this at this thing. If you're going to be a really, really good preacher, you got to focus just for a, a segment. That's really all you do pastorally, mentally, and then do other things recreationally that restore your gas tank, emotional gas tank. And so it's one of the reasons why I've pastored for 47 years and a lot of guys have burnt out is because I take three months every summer and go ride my bicycle or catch salmon or shoot caribou or whatever and then write these sermons and then come back in September full of gas and, uh, and uh, great sermons. So we'll start up this. I'll start preaching here uh, in the first Wednesday of September probably and at Agape in Albany. Maybe it depends on how the guy I'm mentoring does while I'm gone. If he's church has grown while I'm gone, then I'm not going back there. I'm going to start another church someplace else, just a church start, and uh, just for fun to do. So I teach now one of my ministries. If you wonder sometimes what I do, sometimes people say, Pastor D must be retired. Now I do uh, Leadership One on... Uh, on uh, Sunday at 1, I do leader, uh, ladies' leadership at Sunday at 8. I do leadership 2 at Sunday at 3. I have accountability group on Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, Friday morning. I do Wednesday class, and then I preach at Agape on Sunday. And then I have five pastors that I'm coaching, mentoring, 
uh, that I work with via email and um, lunch uh, dates, they always buy. And uh, so I'm, I stay plenty busy, and I'm looking forward to doing that for more time, um, keeping my brain sharp, memorizing scripture, reading a lot, and writing sermons and preaching. So I'll be back in uh, September and preach. And so I wanted to share with you, over the years of attending these universities on church growth, church health, online, and reading every book written on the topic of church growth, church health, and uh, getting blogs from all the best, most successful pastors in the United States, I have learned and I have uh, written material. And so I put this together for Agape, this paper tonight. I'm going to go through it uh, with you. And it's what we would say, okay, if we're going to talk about what's a church look like that God's going to bless. And so this is sort of a, a brief sketching of that. So we'll go through it. Number one, the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. And it is our sole authority for what is true, right, and just. It is the will of God on how we should live our lives in order to be successful, to be blessed by God in every area of our life. The Bible is the key to each of us having a growing love and intimacy with God. Because of this, we should read it every day, every day, every day, study it often, memorize it, meditate on it as a way of life, as a way of life. So I was in a discussion with an uh, individual via uh, uh, Zoom, and his church was in Texas, and he said, how healthy is your church? I said, well, I would be willing to bet that over 50% of the regular adult attenders read the Bible almost every day. He said, really? He said, I've been pastoring for 42 years. I have never yet heard of a church where 50% or more of the adults read the Bible every day. Are you sure that's true? I said, well, I haven't done a survey, but... I talk to a lot of people, I have a lot of accountability groups, I do leadership class, and as far as I can tell, it's pretty much every day for a high percentage of the adults uh, that attend JBC. He said, if that's true, he said, you have got to be like the healthiest church in the United States. I said, I'd agree with that. (laughs) God's word is our authority. That's what we do. We live his word. We study his word. We use that as our standard. I was preaching at a church and I was talking about bitterness and the consequences of it. And there was a lady in the congregation who did a great issue with me. And she talked about her dad who had committed all kinds of, I think I probably shared this story with you before, all kinds of bad, bad, bad things against her. And she said, you expect me to forgive him? I said, nope. Nope, if it were up to me, I'd blow him up, shoot him, torture him. But I don't make the rules God does. And so what I do is I teach you what the Bible says. And if you want to argue with that, you don't argue with me, you argue with God. But God's God, he's in charge. He made everything, made everybody. He can take the breath out of you in a second. You'll be a pile of dirt on the floor. He can fill you with joy, give you peace. And God's the one who said, you forgive anybody of anything because I forgave you. So 
That's the rule. Follow it. Blessed of God. Come up with all kinds of reasons why you don't think that's a good thing to do. That's okay with me. You do what you want, but you won't be blessed by God. God makes the rules and our job is to figure out what they are. Somebody asked me about some things that are sort of current and you know what they are in the political realm. And they say, what do you think of this and this and this and this? I said, you want me to tell you what the Bible says? That's what my standard is on all those issues. It's not what the vast majority of people say. It's not what politicians say. It's what the Bible says. The Bible is my standard for life. It's the rules. God makes the rules. You can violate the law of gravity if you want. You can say, I don't believe in gravity. Jump off a big cliff if you want. But the fact that you deny the existence of gravity won't save your life when you hit the ground. And so there's all these things going on in our culture today where people are saying, this is right, this is wrong, this is okay, this is okay. And uh, God's the one who makes the rules. He's the one who blesses. He's the one who disciplines. He's the one who withholds blessings. God is the ruler. He is the rule maker. And uh, so churches that follow the Bible unapologetically, the churches who just want to find out what the Bible says and not water it down, not try to adjust it for culture, those churches God blesses. He blesses those who honor his word, who study his word, who follow his word, who obey his word. It's as simple as that. Number two, prayer is a majority, a major priority of our life. God's will is that we be devoted to prayer. God's will. When you're doing God's will, you're going to be blessed by God. When you're not doing his will, you won't be blessed by God. God's will is that we be devoted to prayer. Every, each believer needs to spend time with God in prayer every day in order to experience his power, his joy, his peace, his wisdom. God gives power, supernatural. God gives joy. It doesn't come from money. It doesn't come from jobs. It comes straight from God. God gives peace, a peace that passes all comprehension, that guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God gives wisdom, and he gives it to those who pray. He gives it to those who ask for it, and the more you ask, the more you receive. And so I ask for power all day long. I ask for joy all day long. I ask for peace all day long. I ask for wisdom all day long. Because in much asking, there's much receiving. Husbands and wives will have a much better marriage if they pray together at least several times each week. That's the basic law of God. You can violate that one if you want. The church, the body of Christ, our church, Jefferson Baptist Church, will function in unity and love and be powerfully used by God to reach the lost, make disciples if they pray together as the army of God. Much prayer, much blessing, little prayer, little blessing, no prayer, no blessing. So as these uh, church scientists go all over the country and investigate churches that are growing, and they ask questions, probably the most common denominator that they find is that those churches are devoted to prayer. You can study the preaching, you can study the 
the Sunday school, the youth group, you can study the buildings, everything you want. But the most dominant characteristic of healthy, growing churches are churches that have a high level of prayer on the part of the people that attend it, on the church as a whole corporately, and the families in the church. The more prayer there is, the more that church is blessed and used by God. It's about as easy to measure that as it is to get on a scale and see how fat you are or skinny. Uh, you just go in and ask some questions and they rate it and then they go to another one and they go to another one. They rank the church on the basis of health and growth and unity and it's one-to-one correlation. More prayer, the healthier the church. The more prayer, the faster they grow. The more prayer, the more people get saved. The more prayer, the more people are growing. The more prayer, the more unity there is. The more prayer, the more love there is between people in the churches. It's a no-brainer. And all they have to do is just investigate, then they can see that that's true. Third thing God's desire for each of us is that we become increasingly more holy and righteous. As a church, we need to pursue righteousness Examining our own life, confessing all known sin to God as a loving church family, we need to pray for one another, encourage one another, hold each other accountable as we pursue holiness together. In the process of pursuing holiness, we will forgive anybody of anything because we have been forgiven by God. So in the process of pursuing holiness, we don't become self-righteous. We become increasingly more Humble as we recognize that as we pursue it, God working in us causes us to become like him in character. So there are a lot of churches, a lot, who make a big deal out of uh, grace. You're saved by grace. God is a loving God and... uh, He extends grace. They make a big deal out of grace. And they don't emphasize very much at all the pursuit of righteousness or holiness. You're saved by grace. Period. So if you go to those churches, what you hear every Sunday is a salvation message. Jesus died for your sins. Believe Jesus and you'll go to heaven. Okay, let's take the offering. Next Sunday... Jesus died for your sins. Believe and trust in Jesus. You'll go to heaven. Okay, let's take the offering. Next Sunday, same thing, same thing, same thing. It's like, after a while, hey, preacher, I'm already saved. Let's hear something else. Pursuing righteousness is really not under the umbrella of their purpose as a church. And so you've heard me say this repeatedly over and over and over and over again. What you are in character The day you die, the day you enter heaven, the day Jesus comes back, that's who you are. That's who you are. Life has a purpose. The purpose is to grow. And who we are in character the day we step into glory is who we are. God's not going to zap us. If he were going to simply fix us when we stepped into glory, life is a farce. It has no purpose. The purpose of life as a believer is to grow, to become holy. So that we are like him when we get there and he will enjoy us and we will enjoy him because of our character being the same. You'll still go to heaven with the character of a baby. But your experience when you get there won't even be close to the one who has grown in character. 
the glory that the person receives from Christ, who is like him in character, the fellowship they experience with Christ, will be so much higher than the one who enters into heaven as a baby in character, because all that they really heard and cared about was, believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven. And so, grow, grow, grow. Pursue righteousness, pursue holiness. It's what the Bible is about. It's what it teaches us repeatedly, over and over and over again. Number four, every church naturally easily becomes ingrown. That is, the focus of most activities in the church become the health and success of the people in the church to the neglect of reaching the lost. Jesus has commissioned us to be his ambassadors, his witnesses. The church is God's only method of reaching lost people. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer to give us power to be his witness. The number one reason churches become lukewarm and dead is because of a low priority in reaching lost people. <clears throat> so these guys that are the professionals that write the books, that do the, the, the uh, teaching for pastors on how to have a healthy church, they go in and ask questions. They measure every category of the church. And churches all will fall on a 10 to 1 plane, 10 high priority on reaching lost people. One, if God wants them to get saved, he'll get them saved. We don't have to worry about it. A lot of churches in that camp. God will save who he wants. We'll just do church. And I'll pray for your arthritis and you pray for my arthritis i'll pray for your kids and you pray for my kids i'll teach your kids you teach my kids and we just have a nice cozy church family meeting each other's needs it's quite comfortable lots of people like churches like that a church that is not pursuing the lost will not be a church that god blesses it will not be a church that god uses a term that's kicked around a lot today is spirit-filled churches Oh, that church is really spirit-filled. What they tend to mean is that they really have a hot worship service where everybody gets kind of cranked up emotionally. The question is, does that equate to a righteous, holy lifestyle in the week, a healthy marriage, good kids, and people who are reaching the lost? So... The best definition of a spirit-filled church is the church is doing what the Holy Spirit gave them to do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. And if we're not choosing to be a witness for Jesus, then the Holy Spirit in us, he was given to us primarily to give us what we needed to be effective as witnesses for him. And when we choose to be a witness for Jesus, the power of the Spirit works in our life. When the church chooses to be a witness for Jesus and to reach out to people who don't know Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to work in that church. And everybody in the church will sense it and feel it. It will make a huge difference in all the lives. That's a choice. That's a choice churches make, people make, because the natural thing left to itself is we become self-centered. Individually and collectively as a church. A lot of ingrown churches. A lot of ingrown churches. If I were to say, somebody would say, Pastor, would you pastor that church over there for a while? I say, okay. So I go over into that church and I ask the question, is this an ingrown church? I'll suggest, let's 
Try something new. Let's make a change. Ingrown churches have a motto. We've never done it that way before. We don't want to do it if it's new. Don't like change. It's uncomfortable. Did you know one of the rules of church growth scientists? The more a church changes, the faster they grow, as long as they can maintain unity. The more a church changes, the faster it will grow, because culture is changing. The average non-church person doesn't reject a church's savior, they reject the church's culture. Because their culture in the churches is different and uh, they can't fit in. So churches that are changing, adjusting all the time to the world that they're living in, they're trying to reach, those churches grow. But people in the church that like comfort, like things the way they've always been, we're not going to change. Sometimes we'll make changes here just for the sake of making a change, just for the fun of it, just so you don't get used to things. Uh, change is good. The more change there is, the faster the church grows. Um, we, need to, we need to reach the lost. And ministries that we start need to be, a high percentage of those ministries have a, as a goal to reach the lost. Somebody said, why do we do trunk or treat? Are we trying to honor the devil? No, we're doing trunk or treat because the world does trunk or treat and we're giving them a place to come that's a lot safer than the streets. But while they come and get candy, they come on our campus and they see our buildings. They see our gym and they go in and get free hot dogs. And the probability they're coming back to church just moves up a notch. Why do we do the sportsman show anyway? That's, that's just a bunch of guns and fishing rods and boats. They're like... 5,000 people went to that sportsman show, wandered around. There was Jefferson Baptist Church there. There was people with Jefferson Baptist. It's just a buzz. just creates a, it sends a message. And so if somebody's thinking, I need to go to church, they're going to come to church here. And so we have lots of ministries that have as the purpose uh, to plant seeds and to attract people to Jesus Christ. Number five, the great commission given by the church to, uh, by Jesus is to go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. I was amazed the other day at, uh, with a, at a pastor meeting I went to. There was a couple hundred pastors there. The topic of discipleship brought, got brought up and there began to be discussions about what's a disciple? I thought, you gotta be kidding me. You ever read the Bible? Disciples are described repeatedly. John 15, Jesus says, Bear much fruit and prove to be my disciple. That's a disciple. John 8, Jesus says, Abide in my word. Continue to abide in my word and you'll be a true disciple of mine. And so discipleship's described. Uh, a disciple is more than a believer in Jesus. A disciple is a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ who has declared him to be their Lord, Master, and King. They will obey him, serve him with undivided devotion. A disciple is someone who is growing in Christ-like, Christ-like character, who is serving him with their time, money, and gifts, who is becoming more successful as a fisher of men. Disciple-making will happen in the church primarily by the teaching ministries in the church, 
the successful one another in commands being practiced faithfully by every member. A disciple is someone that is following Jesus, serving Jesus, bearing fruit for Jesus, and they're growing. And the church is about making disciples. Six, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the essence of what we must believe to be a true, uh, to be true in order to be saved from the penalty of sin, adopted into the family of God, live eternally with Him. The gospel. Did you know that there are lots of people when you say, what's the gospel? Jesus died for my sins. Well, you got a little bit. So we need to know the power of salvation. 1 Corinthians 15 says, the gospel is the power of salvation. So there's five fingers on your hand to remember the gospel. A, Jesus is God, equal with the Father, always has been, always will be. So if we ask the question, why don't we believe uh, Jehovah Witnesses are Christians? Because they don't believe the gospel. Don't they believe in Jesus? They don't believe he's God. They believe he was created by God. Second, Jesus left heaven, became flesh exactly like us, experiencing all that we experience, being tempted in every way as we are tempted. He became like me so that he could become my substitute and your substitute. See, Jesus never sinned. He lived a sinless life in order to become our substitute and pay the penalty of our sins. D, Jesus became our sin. The Father put all of our sins on Jesus, punished him for our sins. Jesus died on the cross as part of the punishment for our sins. He paid the price. He was my substitute. The Bible teaches that all through the Bible. The substitutionary death. Our sin. And E, Jesus was buried three days later, rose from the dead, and is alive today, reigning with the Father. So you become a believer by believing the gospel. Seven, a lost person is saved by the ABCs. Admitting that they're lost, eternally separated from God because of their sin, that they can't ever be good enough to save themselves. I have probably over the years as a pastor asked, I don't know, hundreds of people this question. If you died tonight and stood before God and he says to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And I would guess 99% have said, well, I've been a pretty good person. I've tried to follow the golden rule. And... They talk about what they do in order to earn their way to heaven. That's just sort of the way we are as people. So if you're going to get saved and go to heaven, the first thing you have to do is say, I can't. I'm not capable of it. Nobody can. They admit they're lost and they can't. Be believing by faith the gospel. Jesus is God. He became flesh. He lived a sinless life. He took all my sin upon himself, paid the price of my sin, died, and rose again and is alive today. Believe the gospel to be true. And see, committing themselves to seek a growing and a growing relationship with Jesus and pursuing holiness and righteousness as a way of life by the power that God supplies. I use the word committing because it's C, A, B, C, but the biblical word is the word repent. Jesus went everywhere preaching, repent. 
repent. The disciples were sent everywhere preaching repent. John the Baptist preached repent. And so we're not saved by good works, but when we truly admit that we can't do it and accept what Jesus did for us, the Spirit of God comes and lives in us and we change. And one of the first things to change is what we want. And what we want is to please him, to be holy. Eight, the church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ, the eternal companion of Jesus. Jesus loves the church, gave his life for the church. Our commitment to Jesus is expressed by our commitment to his body, the church. Our love for Jesus is expressed by our love for his bride, the church. The New Testament does not teach a Christianity apart from the church. So when you go all over the United States and you make appointments with pastors and church boards and you interview them to find out what they do and how they do it and you do this hundreds and hundreds of churches and you begin to take the growing ones over here to find the common denominators, the plateaued ones here, common denominators, declining ones over here, common denominators. Did you know that 87% of the churches in the United States are plateaued or declining? Uh, it's a small number that are actually growing. And so when you go around and talk about what they teach, what they believe, what the platform is, as it were, this particular one is very rare. Church is often seen as peripheral. Take it or leave it, that's not what's really important. You have the Bible and you've got the Holy Spirit and you just go do your thing and, you know, if the church... Fits in fine, if not, no big deal. That's sort of like saying, I'm married, but I don't have a wife. What? How can you be married if you don't have a wife? Well, I just decided I'm married. You decided you're married, but you don't have a wife. Yeah, I'm just sort of pretending. You're pretending you're married and you don't have a wife. Is that stupid? Yeah, that's like dumb. You can't be married without a wife. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus died for the church, gave his life for the church. The church is the eternal companion of Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. And our love for Jesus is measured by our love for his bride. Our commitment to Jesus is measured by our commitment to his church, his body. Number nine, God's will for his bride, the church, is that the church grows. As our church pursues the lost and functions as a witness and an ambassador for Jesus, we will reach the lost, we will grow in numbers. As we obey the Great Commission and make disciples, our church will grow in maturity and Christ-like character. Deep and wide is the expression of this twofold growth. Deep is growing in holiness and character. Wide is growing in numbers of people who are getting saved from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. So I was... Again, at a group, and uh, I was pushing, the purpose was prayer for pastors. And I said, uh, Easter weekend, counting uh, the broadcast, oh, I forget what it's uh, the, uh, the where you can watch it at home if you want. I forget what that's called, live stream. Counting a live stream and tenders and, and Friday night and Saturday night and Sunday morning, we had over 2,000 people come to JBC. And I said this as a, I said the reason is because on the week before, five days of prayer, we had 
2,700 hours of prayer. And God blesses that when we pray. And then somebody said, Pastor D, that offends me. What's that? That you mentioned that you have 2,000 people. I said, why does that offend you? Because you're just boasting. I said, how many do you have? He says, I don't have to tell you that. I said, do you have 10? No, we had more than that. Didn't have 50, did you? You're not offended because I say you have 2,000. You're offended because you only got 50. And you're going to say, that's God's will. That's God's will. I said, are there any lost people around your church? Well, yeah. Okay, it's not his will. Now, if there's no lost people anywhere around your church for 30-minute drive, then you stay the size you are. Perfect. No problem. But you've been given a commission by Jesus. That's to reach lost people. And if you're doing that, you're going to grow. And churches that excuse non-growth on the basis of trusting God are just blowing smoke. I didn't say it quite that rudely. Uh, My wife's trained me. I can be nice when I try. But I did try to make a point that if your church is not growing, there's a problem. If you've got a baby and it's not growing, there's a problem. It's God's will that churches grow unless there's no lost people around it. And if it isn't, it's because... It's not healthy. And so accept that and then investigate and figure out what the problem is and fix it and change it. And use the growth of your church as a thermometer, as it were, to measure the health of your church. Number 10, the judgment of every believer at the end of their life by Jesus for the life they have lived and the, re- and the receiving of eternal rewards and the loss of those rewards ought to be a major motivation For every believer to diligently pursue Christ-like character and to accomplish much fruit in their life. A biblical understanding of eternal rewards recognizes that all rewards are based on the quality and depth of our eternal relationship with Jesus. So, did you know that I didn't hear the term reward until I was 40? And I grew up in the church. I went to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. I went to a Christian college. I became a pastor. I went to some... I didn't hear the term reward until I got to be 40 years of age. And I remember the seminar I went to when I heard about the judgment seat of Christ, receiving rewards for eternity at the judgment seat of Christ for what we did in this life. I thought, man, if I'd heard this when I was like 16... I'd be a crazy person now. I'd be so obsessed with serving, with doing, with working, with learning, with growing. Because eternity is forever and ever and ever and ever. Some will get a bunch of rewards and some will get none. And I hear people say, who cares? I'm going to heaven. That's like saying you're going to go to Disneyland and you're going to sit in your car the 10 days you're there. Great, you're in Disneyland. So how much fun is it to go to Disneyland and sit in your car for 10 days? Well, I don't care about rewards. I just, I just love Jesus. Did you know that those who got, get no, have no rewards 
Jesus is going to be, the, the thousand-year reign on the earth is going to be the capital in Jerusalem. And there are going to be some people in Fargo, North Dakota. They're going to be in the kingdom. But who wants to be in Fargo, North Dakota, when you could be in Jerusalem with Jesus? You really love Jesus? Well, then you'll want to be near him. Not in Fargo, North Dakota. Uh, sorry for those of you who are from Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> 11, every person who is part of the body of Christ ought to be involved in some way in a ministry. It's the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and if you love Jesus, you love his church. If you're committed to Jesus, you're committed to his church. It can be a serving ministry, a teaching ministry, a ministry to children, adults. A good motto for the church is don't be a wart. Wart is part of the body, but it doesn't do anything. It looks ugly. I've had several people Say, Pastor, I'm doing what I'm doing because I don't want to be a wart. Good man. Way to go. Twelve, goals are good. Goals are good. A goal is a statement of repentance. I'm going to change. I'm going to grow. And you describe what it is. A goal is a statement of faith. A goal is a statement of what we believe is God's will for our lives individually, corporately, as a church. As a church, we'll set goals, promote goals, pray for those goals, work towards the accomplishment of those goals together. So if I get uh, 500 pastors together and I say, what's the number one requirement to be a good leader of your church? And they will say to a person, vision. Good leaders are visionary. Next question, what's that mean? I remember when I started studying visionary leadership. I came to the conclusion after going through one seminar that I had to smoke marijuana. In order that I could have this vision. I didn't have a clue what that was. And then I kept studying it. And I came to the conclusion. All vision is. is a. It's sort of like. Let's go to Israel together. Y'all want to go to Israel? I'm paying. I got a lot of money. And I'm going to pay everybody's way that wants to go. If you want to go. You got to take 10 days off of work. Whatever to go to Israel. With me. Okay. We're going to leave on this date. And we're going to come home on this date. And when we're there, we're going to go see a dairy. Yeah, they have the best dairies in the world in Israel. And we're going to go see, swim in the Dead Sea, too. We're going to climb up to the top of Mount Masada. And we're going to go in the old city and do some walking tours. Now, I'm telling you about what's going to happen in six months. What is that? That's vision. We're going to do it together. And so good leadership is visionary leadership. And they simply say, this is what we are going to do. This is our goal. This is our goal. Next week, next month, six months, one year, two years, ten years, twenty years. This is where we're going. This is where we're headed. This is what our dreams are. So good leaders are setting goals and teaching people how to set goals. And you all are setting goals, right? You're setting goals for your Bible reading. You're setting goals for your prayer life. You're setting goals for your ministry. Uh, you're setting goals for how many fish you're going to catch. What you want in the future is what you make a goal for. What you want in the future you believe is God's will for you. And you make a commitment on paper. That's a goal. And so when I tell pastors, our goal is to grow 10% a year. Well... What if God doesn't want you to grow 10% a year? Why wouldn't he? 
Why wouldn't he? If a farmer growing corn decides to increase his yield by 10% and goes to a farmer who's getting lots more corn than he is and finds out, why are you doing that? And does what he does, he'll... God has no problem with making corn grow for guys who follow the principles and the rules and the guidelines on how to grow corn. And he has no problem with increasing the growth of a church where people discover what makes a church grow. How does it become healthy? What prompts God to bless that church, to use that church? Well, there are plenty of churches around that are being blessed and being used and are growing. Just find out and do them. And then we'll make a goal to become that kind of church. So it's... Not rocket science, really. But it does require some level of humility to look at somebody who's doing it and then use them as a model. And not to think that I can do it by myself with no help from anybody else. Um, That's the best formula for failure I know of. So that's our values because they're the values of the Bible and they're the values that God blesses And they're the ones, the churches that he uses. So I wrote this primarily for Agape because I'm leaving and Preston's taken over for four months. And I want to say, this is where you want to go. This is who you want to become. Uh, Become this kind of church and you'll be blessed as a church and you'll be blessed as a people in the church. And you'll experience God's blessing in your life. Um, But his blessing is conditional. He says, how blessed is the person who does this, does this? And we do what God says, and he blesses us, and he uses us, and we bear much fruit. And someday we'll stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, and he will say to us, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Hey, come on into eternity. I'm going to give you responsibility over a whole bunch of stuff, because you did well, and you grew.